1: and cry. studying about that good old way and who shall wear the robe and crown good
2: Our Gospel reading this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, the third chapter. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so Now, This is the word of God for the people of God.
1: Thanks Thanks be to God.
2: Well, when our first son was born, we thought long and hard about a name for him, for we had certain things that we wanted to convey with the name. After all, if you name your child Bubba, it creates a certain image in the eyes of other people and in the mind of your son, But naming him Albert Einstein gives a different image. Daniel is different from Ahab, which is different from Spock. Eventually, we decided we wanted to convey the image of an educated man. So we considered Archimedes and Socrates, but decided they were too long. But we decided we liked the idea of the name John because John was probably the most educated of the disciples and the name means God is gracious. For Sandra never expected to have a son, yet we also wanted to give a bit of Scottish and Irish flavor. So we chose Ian, I-A-N because that's Scottish for John. And he grew up educated, he's finishing up a PhD. With our daughter, we chose Jesse, not Jezebel, and not Jessica, because there's always been a Jesse in Sandra's family, and we like the Western flavor of the name Jesse. And she grew up and she moved to Alaska, about as far west as you can go. Our youngest son became Andrew Jack, because Andrew is the disciple who brings people to Jesus, while Jack was the name of his grandfather. Andrew is now a pastor at Mill Creek, West Virginia. But there was one thing we never did. We never even thought about letting them name themselves because they might come up with Bubba or King Friday or, as a friend of mine did, decide when they're five years old that they couldn't pronounce Kathy and told everyone, I'm khaki. And she became khaki and still is khaki today, almost 60 years later. No, we decided to handle the naming, the naming and they would have to live with the names we gave our children. We figured it was our job to name them and we gave them the names and they grew into those names. Names are important. Jesus was named Jesus because an angel told both Mary and Joseph, to give him that name, which in the language of the time was actually Joshua, which means God is salvation. So Jesus means God is salvation. So on this particular day, Jesus, God is salvation, went to the Jordan River to see John the baptizer. God is gracious. They knew each other, they were cousins. John was about six months older than Jesus, and at this time, they were both about 30 years old But they were very different, and yet they were similar. John was a wild, rugged, outdoorsy type. He lived in the wilderness, he ate off the land. Jesus was a bit more polished. He had a good profession as a carpenter. He was well educated, but there was a difference there. Jesus was almost unknown. John, though, was at the peak of his professional career as a preacher and a prophet. Crowds of people, hundreds of people, came from Galilee and Jerusalem to hear him give it to the elites and the wealthy and the rulers. For in that day, as well as today, there were people who thought that because they had it all, they had it good with the material things of life, because they could afford to do all the duties required by the religious law, they thought they were better than the homeless beggars, the poverty-stricken farmers, the women who sold their bodies for money, and the people who worked for the occupying Romans and King Herod Antipas's court. John, because of what he said, was widely respected and listened to, but Jesus was a nobody. And so Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John, understanding much about the character of Jesus, tried to turn the tables on Jesus. John said, I need to be baptized by you. Why are you coming to me? John, you see, was a humble man. Despite his reputation for fiery rhetoric, John knew that he had the stain of sin on his character. This was the true character of John, a humble man whom Jesus would later say, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there's not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. John was a good man. He was a very good man, but John also knew that he had sins that needed to be removed. Have you ever painted old furniture or an old building? At first, as we begin to put that that new white paint over the old dingy white paint, everything looks great. And so we paint the building or the furniture and we pat ourselves on the back because it looks so good and then we go in and eat lunch. And then we come back out and the latex paint has dried and we can see the old stains showing through the new paint. In fact, we can see spots that we missed, little specks of gray, little streaks showing up on an otherwise white background. And so we have to put a second coat on the building or the furniture, and then we go in and we eat supper. And when we come back out to admire our work, we can still see areas where our work hasn't quite done the job, and we pick up our paintbrush once again, for spots that we didn't even notice after the first coat are now very visible to us after the second coat, and maybe even after a third coat. In the same vein, I once knew a woman who worked for an advertising agency I did business with in New York City. She was a copy editor. She tried to find the mistakes and she could find the tiniest mistakes because she had done this for 15 or 20 years. In fact, she was so picky that she used a magnifying lens to look at print advertising and brochure proofs and she could see a single pixel dot, a single tiny dot of yellow on a white background. Now, that takes a lot of careful looking. For you see, the closer you are to perfection, the more the imperfections stand out. It's the purest souls who are most aware of the remaining sin in their lives. And John was a very pure soul. He wasn't quite perfect, but he was very pure. Yet Jesus, the truly sinless one, insists that John has to baptize Jesus. Why? Because it's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness, Jesus said. Jesus insisted on being baptized by John because it was the right thing to do. John thought that the baptisms he was doing for repentance were washing away sins. John knew that Jesus was without sin and John knew that John had sin. And so John thought it was necessary for Jesus, the sinless man, to baptize John and wash away John's sins. But Jesus effectively said this that day. He said baptism can wash away sin. Repentance, like John preached, is necessary for those who have sinned. We've got to turn away from our old ways. But baptism is simply right and good in itself. It's necessary for even the sinless to submit to doing what is right, even if there was no obvious need for baptism in the first place, even if there was no sin in the first place. Because sometimes, you see, the act of submitting to something is what's more important than what is the obvious purpose of that something. All are to be baptized because Jesus said it was necessary to fulfill all righteousness. Does baptism give us into heaven? No. But a Christian is to be baptized. Why? Because Jesus said it was necessary, and his disciples agreed. Those who don't get baptized because they only think belief in Jesus is necessary for salvation are missing something profound. They're not following Jesus. They've not quite accepted Jesus as Lord of their lives, but instead are telling Jesus Jesus, terms under which they will consider him. They're like someone who's still negotiating with an equal, like a man holed up in a shack negotiating with a sheriff's deputy over terms of surrender. They've not yet chosen to bow to Jesus as the Lord of their lives. Did you notice that Jesus could simply have said, John, you're right, I don't need baptism. After all, I am the eternal and perfect Son of God. But Jesus chose to be baptized by John and showed his humble character by doing so. This is the humble God that we serve. Another aspect of this exchange only comes when we think really carefully. The one doing the baptism, you see, doesn't matter. For the baptizer doesn't clean the man. If the condition of the baptizer mattered, if the water was dirty, then Jesus would have been soiled by John's baptism, for John was imperfect, sinful. He would have contaminated the perfection of Jesus. But you see, it's God who does the cleansing of the heart. The water doesn't, and the baptizer doesn't. God is the real presence in every baptism. Later, in the book of Acts, a group of disciples traveled to Samaria and found that many people had been baptized by John's baptism for repentance of sins. But Luke tells us that they did not yet know of the Holy Spirit. And this leads us to the second part of baptism, the arrival of the Holy Spirit. As soon as John had baptized Jesus... Jesus went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. Matthew doesn't tell us that a dove landed on Jesus, but the Spirit of God landed on him. Yet he describes the Spirit as a dove, a harmless, inoffensive, peaceful bird. You know, doves mourn a lot like Jesus did and like mature Christians do. We see all sorts of sadness in the world, and we mourn because we know the way things could have been. Doves see well through their eyes that are always watching everyone around them like mature Christians should. Doves were offered in sacrifice, and a dove brought back that olive branch of peace to Noah after the flood. The spirit was in the form of a dove, notice that, it wasn't a predatory hawk or an eagle, it wasn't a vulture that picks over the dead, and it wasn't a silly songbird. The spirit is in the form of a peaceful, gentle dove. And we try to imitate this today following Jesus. For after the water, the pastor lays hands on the baptized and prays for the Holy Spirit to come upon the baptized person. This is what the disciples did in Samaria, and the Spirit began to perform a great work in that land. And this is what John meant when he said, I baptize with water for the repentance of sin, but after me comes one who will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. For you see, the most important part of baptism is not the water, but the Holy Spirit. Once we've received the Holy Spirit, we need never be baptized again, for the Spirit cannot make a mistake. God does the baptism, not a poor, frail pastor. And the spiritual condition of the recipient of the baptism doesn't matter, for all who are baptized are flawed and sinful, messed up and imperfect. Only Jesus was sinless. The idea behind baptism is that the water may wash away the sins, But the Holy Spirit fixes the heart, something no man can do, only the Holy Spirit. Besides the word baptize, the first time we run across it in the ancient world, it referred to that permanent change of state when a cucumber becomes a pickle. Then it referred later to that irreversible act of sprinkling or pouring dye on cloth, including the possible immersion of the cloth. It's the permanent change of state that's critical here, not merely a washing. The receipt of the Holy Spirit causes that permanent change in our hearts and our spiritual condition. We go from being a rebel to God and become instead a citizen of the kingdom of God. We've been marked by the Spirit as one of God's family. But don't I need to know what I'm doing when I'm baptized? Don't I need to know enough? Don't I need to be a certain age to be baptized? No. Baptism isn't about knowledge. It's about the Holy Spirit coming into our hearts and guiding us. If you think the Holy Spirit of God has the wisdom and the love to lead you properly, you should be baptized and follow Jesus. If you think your children need to be baptized, Following Jesus, you need to baptize them. If you think that Jesus is evil or the Holy Spirit is evil, then don't get baptized. I've had people say to me, I think my children need to decide for themselves about baptism. That's a nice idea, but it tells me a lot about the parents' faith. Or it tells me that they don't really think that Jesus is the only way to God. Or they don't really love their children deeply for I've seen what happens when a decision is given to teenagers. They usually do what their friends want them to do rather than what their parents tell them to do or what's the best choice for their lives. Now, I know that some groups maintain that you have to be a certain age before you're baptized, but that idea is actually a very recent idea from the night in Acts 16, when Paul and Silas met the Philippian jailer and his entire household was baptized, you'll notice that the book of Acts repeats twice that the entire household was baptized. From that time until 1520, very young children were always baptized. It was only in the 1520s that Menno Simons, the founder of the Mennonites, began to rebaptize adults. You did not give your children a choice in their names, did you? You didn't give your children a choice in whether they were vaccinated for measles, for, di- for chickenpox, for diphtheria, for tetanus, for a host of diseases that could kill them as children. For there are some decisions that parents need to make to protect their children, and baptism is one of those decisions. Of course, the child doesn't know what's happening and can't consent. But would you deny baptism? to a man who could not speak simply because he could not speak? Would you deny baptism to a woman who had such severe mental handicaps that she didn't understand what was happening when the water was applied? Would you deny baptism to an unconscious person about to die? Of course not. And so the parents who love a child, the parents who want to choose Christ for their children, the parents who plan to raise their children according to Christian principles, will not wait for the child to make a different choice for a different choice will take them away from Christ. No, they'll have their child baptized and then they'll do their very best to raise the children in church until they reach their teenage years and then those teenagers will stand in front of the congregation and take vows to follow Christ of their own will. But in the meanwhile, they will have had the Holy Spirit in their heart influencing them at every step Jesus received the Holy Spirit that day, and then a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. God spoke. God gave his endorsement of Jesus on the day and the time when Jesus was baptized, even though he did not have sins that needed to be washed away. Will God be pleased with us? when we do what's needed to fulfill all righteousness. So do what is right. Bow to Jesus, pray for guidance, and do what he asks of us. For God alone decides what happens to us in the next life. As near as we can tell, baptism isn't absolutely required for our salvation. God decides in every individual case. The thief on the cross was promised by Jesus to be with him in paradise later that day. But, of course, this was before the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the followers of Jesus. That day, Peter spoke the wonderful sermon in Acts chapter 2, saying, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And that day, over 3,000 people were baptized and joined the church. You see, there's two ordinary methods. The way spoken about in the book of Acts and by the various Christian churches throughout the ages. Two ways to salvation. You, beg- you believe that Jesus is Son of God and therefore has the power and love to save us. It- you are baptized and receive the Holy Spirit and then choose to follow Jesus throughout your life or a young child is baptized and receives the Holy Spirit, and then the belief is gradually awakened as they grow up in a Christian environment and naturally choose to follow Jesus. A simple reading of the book of Acts, focusing upon the ordinary, normal situations and not focusing upon the few exceptions, shows us that Christians are to be baptized with water and receive the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands. Can you sprinkle? document considered for the New Testament, known as the didarchy, or the teaching of the apostles, dates from the year 70 or 80. And it declares that sprinkling, pouring, and immersion are all acceptable, and even that warm water can be used if cold water cannot be found. Plus, a literal translation from the Greek of the second part of Mark 7.4 says, They baptize cups and vessels and utensils and dining couches. Few people would insist that dining couches be immersed. Instead, they were sprinkling them for purification. Who may become a Christian believer? Well, Years after Jesus' baptism, years after his resurrection, years after the Holy Spirit came upon the followers of Jesus at Pentecost, the apostle Peter spoke to a mixed crowd of Romans and Jews, a household of a Roman captain about Jesus. And we should keep in mind Peter's words. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he's the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of (coughs) sins through his name.